0: Amen. Guys, it's been a morning, and so we're just going to take a second, we're going to take a breath, and we're going to say a prayer. If you guys would bow with me. Father, we trust and believe that you have a plan for our life, and that you are constantly intervening to direct us along that path. And so we just want to open up this morning, Lord, and say, whatever you have for us today, we want it. Wherever you want us to go, we want it. And so I just pray, Father, that in the midst of this storm that you would bring calm, that you would speak through your word this morning, and that we would learn from this second to last book of the Bible. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so we're starting a new sermon series today on the book of Jude. I'm going to try to keep it brief. The book is brief, but it is so jam-packed, full of stuff. Like literally, you sat down and uh, read this book. You could read it in under five minutes. I know that for a fact because if you go into the Bible app, you can listen to it in under five minutes. It's a very short book. But a few verses in, Jude says, I'm going to tell you something. I know I'm just reminding you. You already know, and then it's a whirlwind of information. And so we're going to try to catch up today to where those first century readers were that apparently knew what Jude was talking about. This book is thick. Molly and I have been talking about it, discussing it constantly for multiple weeks. And she's like, you know, in the Bible, it talks like the writer of Hebrews and Paul encourages, let's move away from the milk, the easy things and get into the meat. Jude is just meat from beginning to end. It reminds me of. Uh, it might be. It might be. It might be a lot of meat, but it is really, really good. It reminds me of something that happened this last Sunday. Uh, we met with the youth group before the Super Bowl to kind of finalize some plans for Youth Sunday, and we were talking through songs. and One of the kids in the youth group said, "Oh man, that lo- last song today, that song eight. And I was like, "I have no context to make sense of what you just said." No, maybe. Oh, I ate singing. No, you said I ate singing that song. And we were like, what does that mean? And Casey said, you know, like, ate it up. <laughs> that meant something way different whenever I was a kid. When they're like, he ate it, it's a completely different meaning. Um, but that's the book of Jude. We're going to eat it up. Not to call you out, Casey. I said somebody from the youth group. You could have remained anonymous, but it was <laughs> Casey Taha. Um, so, anyway. This book is thick, and it has a, a big warning, and I can't imagine but that Satan doesn't want you to hear what the book of Jude has for your life today. And that's why everything has been going crazy. But let me just tell you, he didn't succeed. He didn't succeed. All right. So who was Jude? The book's titled. It's the author's name. We find this out from the very first verse. Let's see if this, obviously this, oh yeah, I gotta turn it on. I was about to say, obviously this is not gonna work. This letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So we get this idea already who the author is. He's introduced himself as the brother of James. Now, for various reasons we're not gonna go into because you guys have to eat lunch. The only James that this writer could be referring to is James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He sat over the Jerusalem or he was one of the members who sat over the Jerusalem Council, this big meeting that happened toward the beginning of the church. and this James was the brother of Jesus Christ. And so Jude is saying he's the brother of James, which means Jude is the brother of Jesus Christ. So this is Jesus's little brother. Now we can only speculate why he didn't say, I'm Jesus's little brother. He says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, brother of James. But we have to imagine it's probably because the conviction that he feels that for most of his life, he didn't believe. For most of his life, Jesus was just his big brother. And big brothers are annoying. We actually know this for a fact, because Mark records it in his gospel in chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, Jesus is doing all these miracles. He's traveling around, and he's collecting these huge crowds of people. Oh, we're back. We're back. He's collecting these huge crowds of people, and um, his family looks at this that's happening. All these people coming in, all these miracles that are happening, and what did they decide? He must be crazy. Let's go get him and bring him home. That was his family's attitude about the ministry of Jesus Christ. So at some point along the way, Jude's attitude changed. He acknowledges Jesus Christ as Lord, and he takes up this mantle. Next question is, who is Jude's audience? Who is he writing this letter to? And that's the second part of the first verse. I am writing to all who have been called by God the Father, who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. Guess who that is? All of us. We are the ones who are called by God the Father. So we know that this letter is to us. Now. More than likely, he had a church that he was sending this to, and a lot of people speculate it was probably the church that 2 Peter was written to, because both of these books go together, and they talk about a lot of the same thing. Here's the interesting (laughs) part, though. Peter said something was going to happen. Jude said it's happening right now. All right. Why was he writing? Verse three, dear friends, I have been eagerly planning to write you about the salvation we all share. He's planning on writing a good letter. It's gonna be a happy one. We're gonna rejoice in the salvation of Christ. But now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. So he's gonna write about the salvation that we all share. And he was pressed by the Holy Spirit to write something different. And it says here, he was writing to urge them to defend the faith. Urging us to defend the faith. The Greek word here is used only here. And it's translated different ways, depending on which translation you read. The NIV says, er, sorry, the NIV says, urge you to contend for the faith. I was a contender, you know? You guys understand what we're getting here, like a fighting type of, of analogy? Um, the The Good News translation says, encouraging you to fight on for the faith. The Amplified, it's got all the extra words. It says, appealing that you fight strenuously for the defense of the faith. And then the message, gotta love how they put it, insisting, no, begging that you fight with everything you have in you for this faith. The word here that's being used, used once in the Bible, elsewhere in first century Greek writing, we see that this is used in two different connotations. One would be a military analogy. And this would be not the way that we fight today, but the way they fought back then in the first century where you had like a shield and a sword And then just two groups just ran together, and you were in that melee until one side won. And so that's what he's talking about here, encouraging you to be a contender, to contend for your faith. The other thing that this analogy or this word was used for in the first century would be for the Olympic athletes. So not like you're running a race in your neighborhood or you're playing, you know, two on two basketball, pickup basketball at the park. This is like an elite athlete and the striving that they go through in order to attain an Olympic medal. So this is some serious stuff. There's also not a lot as far as our faith goes that we're asked to actively partake in, right? Our salvation is by the blood of Christ, not by works. It's faith alone so that nobody can boast. But right here, the author of Jude is encouraging us to take part in this defense or fighting for our faith. So it's something that's important. And we love God, so we should be eager to do the things that he asks us to do. All right, so that was why it was written. To urge us to to be contenders. Who are we contending against? Who are we contending against? And that's picked up in the very next verse. I say this, right, saying "I I urge you eagerly to contend for the faith. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So this is who we're contending against, these ungodly people who have wormed their way into the church. Now he's probably thinking of some specific individuals at this time um, but this is not a problem that just this church had we know because many of the new testament letters were written addressing some kind of false teaching that had entered into these different churches and so jude here is is highlighting this specific group of 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 people and i want to talk about these three characteristics Jude is all about threes. If you read through here, threes happen a lot. He hits you with threes, and then he tells three stories, and he's got three points, and he tells three more stories, and that happens three times. There's a lot of threes in Jude. But he uses these three words to describe these, these people, and I just want to focus on talk about these three words, all right? So the Greek word translated as ungodly is as ebes. So it starts with the word ah, which is against, And then it has this this, um, root word, um, um, abase, And uh, it's used in eight verses in the whole Bible. And Jude uses it almost half of those total times in his work. It's used by Paul and Peter as well as Jude. And it refers in every one of those as you read through in Romans and Corinthians, as you read through when it talks about the ungodly, this word here, Um, Ab, it talks about us, all of us, before we have experienced the transforming grace of God, right? How we were before we heard the gospel, how we were before our lives were changed. And so we already see here that these people who've wormed their way into the church, they haven't experienced that transforming grace of God. So obviously they misunderstand it. If it's not transforming their life, then they don't understand what it's there for. And so they're misusing it. They're saying um, that the grace of God, like God loves you. God's gracious. That should give you the freedom to do whatever you want. Whatever your heart desires is right. Because God loves you and he's forgiven you. Right? It says, these um, encouraging or allowing us to live an immoral life. An immoral life. So because they had no experience of this grace, they misunderstood it. They mixed truth with lies. We've seen that from Genesis at the beginning, right? God does love you. God does forgive you. And then they twist it just a little bit. And then they say, you should be able to live however you want. Just ask for forgiveness. Friday night doesn't matter because you'll be at church on Sunday morning. Just ask for forgiveness. You'll be good. And then last but not least, Um, They deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So this would be something along the lines of, Jesus was a great moral teacher. We should learn from him. Uh, But that's where it ends, right? He wasn't God. And he doesn't need to have control over your life. Just eat the meat, spit out the bones when it comes to Jesus. And so these were the three characteristics. They were ungodly. They were encouraging the church to live immoral lives. And they were denying the lordship of Christ. And then it says their fate is sealed. This is something that we've learned from the very beginning. And this is where Jude says, and you already know this, so obviously I'm just reminding you. And then he talks about three wild stories from the Old Testament. How the Israelites were freed from Egypt. And they were walking along the path to the promised land the way that God wanted them to go. And they rebelled. And what did God do? He didn't let them go into the promised land. The second is a crazy uh, story also from Genesis where the angels came down, had sex with women, and made children. And there is multiple different viewpoints of how this story should be understood. But the point that Judah's is making is they gave up their place as angels and they went against God's plan and they were judged for It, it says they were thrown into the fire. And then the third would be Sodom and Gomorrah again getting rid of god's plan and in this case it was kind of a flip side of that men wanting to have sex with angels um, they gave up on god's plan and again sodom and gomorrah was judged so what this is saying is when we go the opposite way of god when we give up on what god wants for our life when we say i know what's best for me there is only destruction along that path and it will happen all three of these cases Ended in destruction, examples of rebellion that ended in destruction. Uh, buh, 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 flip the page. And then in pure real-to-real fashion, Jude quotes from a story that's not in the Bible. You say, what? He talks about in the Old Testament how when Moses died, Satan and Michael argued over his body. It's not in scripture, won't be able to find it. But the point that he's making is, even in this story that you all know, because it was a popular story in first century uh, Jewish culture, even in this story you all know, the angels knew not to go against God's plan. Michael didn't say, Satan, you're wrong. Michael said, the Lord rebuke you, right? God's plan is the way to go. And then he goes through, describes these guys again, and then gives three more stories. And again, these are stories of rebellion that ended in in destruction for the person involved. He talks about Cain, right? Cain was the first murder recorded in scripture. And it started with Cain saying, I know how to worship God. There's not a lot of, of details given. Cain presented an offering to God, Abel presented an offering to God, and Cain's was accepted. Cain said, I know how to worship God, and it was different than the way God wanted. Second is um, Balaam. We read about him this last week, this weird prophet in the Old Testament who wasn't part of Israel, but apparently talked to God, and people would pay him to give prophecies. And um, his donkey talks, it's a wild story. But we find out from Balaam, and this this is, I think, interesting for today, Balaam couldn't curse the Israelites from the outside. You guys know the story. He was paid by the king to curse the Israelites. And he stood before the Israelites, and he couldn't curse them. Why couldn't he curse them? They were God's chosen people. The devil wanted to stop our worship this morning. Could he do it? No, he couldn't, because we're God's chosen people. But if you continue the story of Balaam, he comes back up. For those of us who are reading through the Bible in the air, you really should join us citypointchurch.tv forward slash cpcbible24. We'll finish Balaam's story on Tuesday. And it tells us what Balaam did. He couldn't curse the Israelites from the outside. So what did he do? He went and found the nations that the Israelites weren't supposed to intermingle with. And he convinced the women of the Moabites and the Midianites to go into the Israelite camp. And they wormed their way in and brought destruction for the Israelites. Jim Rohn, I was introduced to him earlier this week in my YouTube feed. I don't know if you guys doom scroll, but I get caught occasionally doom scrolling. He popped up, he was an entrepreneur and, uh, and an author and a motivational speaker. And, uh, and he gave this story, he said he was talking with these kids and they asked him, um, you know, Mr. Jim, how do you live the good life? And he said, I have two lessons, and they have to do with coffee. Our life is mixed with good and bad. And he said, I have this cup of coffee here. If someone were to put sugar into this coffee, what would happen? They said, well, the coffee would taste better. He said, if I put strychnine into this coffee, what would happen? And they said, you would die. It's that straightforward. He said, life is full of sugar and it's full of strychnine. It's full of stuff to make your life better, and it's full of stuff that's going to kill you. Going to bring you destruction. And then he asked this question What would happen if my worst enemy put sugar in my coffee? And they said, Well, you would be fine. Your coffee would taste better. And he said, What if my best friend, somebody who is well intentioned, on accident, put strychnine into my coffee? And they said, Well, that would kill you. And he said, You have to guard your life. You have to guard your mind because it's not the intent of the stuff that's coming in that matters. It's the outcome. And that's what we're seeing here. These people that Jude is talking about have wormed their way in. These are people who would say, I am a Christian. And I don't know about you guys, but most of the time, I take a person's word at that, right? They're saying, I am a Christian and here's what the gospel is to me. And then they bring in ungodliness, which is anti-worship. They bring in grace as a reason to live immoral lives, which is against God's plan. And they deny the lordship of Christ. See, God doesn't, God doesn't tell me what to do. Jesus didn't live the best life. I don't have to model my life after Him. And so we have to ask: what do we do about that? So I have three ways, three takeaways. From today and these are straightforward because we've already started so how do we contend for the faith number one is going to be against their ungodliness and that's to worship number two is against their saying that god's grace allows us to live immoral lives and that's reading scripture and number three is prayer because prayer is when we really acknowledge Jesus as Lord of our life and pray that he directs us and so I've got three verses what happens when we worship the writer of Psalms spoke about this he said great is the Lord he is most worthy of praise he is to be feared above all gods this writer is writing not just to the Israelites but to all the nations around he says there, the gods of other nations are mere idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty surround him. Strength and beauty fill his sanctuary. O oh, nations of the world, recognize the Lord. Recognize that the Lord is glorious and strong. Give to the Lord the glory he deserves. Bring your offering and come into his courts. Third, oh, sorry, second is to read. To read his word. I know you guys hear that from me and you're like, well, that's that's Nathan shtick. He gets on stage and is like, you guys should read the Bible with us in a year. I will say it every time I'm on stage because the word of God is transformative. How are you going to know if somebody brings you some other gospel? You have to know it from the word. Paul talks about it multiple times. He says, if anyone, even if it's an angel from heaven, even if it's me, if I bring you something different, it's just bringing destruction. So how do we know? We got to read. Paul writes about it in his letter to little Timothy, Second Timothy. Got it right here. Second Timothy three fourteen. But you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the holy Scripture from childhood, and he's talking about from his mom and his grandma. And they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Jesus Christ. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. And I can already hear it because I hear it from the youth group. It's hard to read the Bible. It's hard to understand. And I'll tell you what I told my high school class whenever I was a teacher. Hard things are important. It's important to do the hard things. And then last but not least, prayer. We'll get into it next week. Jude talks about praying in the spirit. And that's because when we pray, we are entering into the spiritual realm. We are talking with our creator, and not just our creator, but our savior, the one who directs our path. Paul writes about it to the church in Corinth. He says, we are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. He's using that same military analogy. And Why don't we wage war as humans do? Because Jesus has already won. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. That's what we're doing. We're worshiping, we're reading, we're praying because we're all contending for the faith. And it sounds kind of scary and you're kind of unsure, but we're fighting a battle that God's already won. He's inviting us to take part in that victory with him. And that's what we're gonna sing about this next song. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this difficult book of Jude. This doesn't even have chapters, just one read straight through. And we just, we wanna learn from it, Father, and not just learn from it, but we want it to change our lives. We don't want to walk away from this mirror and forget what we look like, but we want to have you shine the light of scripture into our lives. Father, we want to be people that contend for the faith, that fight for the truth, that bring love and grace and mercy, your love and grace and mercy to the world, because God, we know that it's the only love and grace and mercy that is transformed. So equip us, go with us, lift us up, Father, as we lift you up in Jesus' name, amen. Y'all stand up, let's sing.